Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 15, the Distinctive Scar Edition. I'm Scott Tobias. On today's show, the arrival of Jason Bateman, auteur, has us thinking about the phenomenon of other actors-turned-directors. Also arriving this week is the big-screen version of the beloved cult TV series Veronica Mars, which owes its existence to a wildly successful Kickstarter campaign. Many other crowdfunded movies have happened in its wake, but questions remain about what types of movies deserve crowdfunding and what fans should expect from their investment. And with apologies to Saturday Night Live, our game this week is Dylan McDermott or Dermot Moroni, in which I ask our experts to do the impossible and tell those two dudes apart. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Jason Bateman has been appearing as an actor in movies since his debut as a Teen Wolf in 1987's Teen Wolf 2. Uh, but in the 25 years plus he's been in the business, he's never once stepped behind the camera. Until now. Bateman's profane spelling bee comedy, Bad Words, was released in theaters today. We thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about other actor-turned-directors. Uh, what do we expect to see from them? Uh, what might they bring to a movie that a director who doesn't act might not? Who are the good ones? Who are the bad ones? Joining me are two non-actors who have never directed, uh, Tasha Robinson and Nathan Rabin. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm actually uh, somebody playing Tasha Robinson. She can make it. Wow. So I am the actor. This, is, this has been a, a, a very it's long Joseph method. It's Joseph Gordon-Levitt's finest performance it's, to date. It's a, a, a very long method performance from, from Tasha that's lasted 15 years or so. Well, the real we Tasha Robinson is directing me remotely. Uh, I've got like a little uh, earpiece in my ear. She's telling me. Yeah, what you're, like, you're, like, you're like Coppola directing out of a trailer all right so so what can can we make generalizations i mean when you think about actors turned directors do you, do you have a certain idea of what to expect from that i i do have if i can make a sweeping generalization and that is i'm when, asking for it. and that is when when actors direct a motion picture uh there is a premium placed upon acting uh, that kind of yeah. Yeah, sort of goes without saying, but yeah, oftentimes these are real actor showcases. Oftentimes you have this real intensity. Uh, a lot of times you have movies that are not terribly commercial. You know, you kind of have your labors of love that you see at Sundance every year, and that for the most part are never released or, or you know go direct to video. I'm talking about you, Sympathy for Delicious. Oh wow! Mark Ruffalo's uh, directorial wow. debut. That's and we could, of the we, we all could just talk. Spend the rest of this podcast talking about Sympathy for Delicious and our disappointment with Sympathy for Delicious. But but I think that's what you expect. You know, you expect acting. You expect uh, intensity. You expect a little bit of a John Cassavetes uh, sort of thing to cite. You know, sort of a, a seminal uh, actor. Uh, turned director. Um, so that at least uh, is what I kind of uh, anticipate from uh, acting. I mean, it really depends on the size of the movie. I think when you've got your little, like, your one-off projects, like uh, John Malkovich doing The Dancer Upstairs, or Gary Oldman doing Nil by Mouth, when it is a movie on that scale, you can certainly expect uh, acting to be a premium. But then when you have your, like, long-term career, uh, like, people who are actors and can transition pretty fully over to directing, maybe not entirely, maybe they still do roles, but it's their primary career. So you have like your Ron Howards and your Clint Eastwoods. I think at that point, uh, you, like all bets are off in terms yeah. of it being a small labor of love. Like the, the movies that they make are on such a, a larger scale and are pitched so firmly towards the mainstream. I think it really gets away from that, like the Lake Bell school of, <laughs> I, I really need to be making my own movies to say what I want to say. Well, yeah, I, I, that's, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, there's a distinction to be drawn between uh, people who, who kind of do one or two direct films as d directors who are primarily known as actors and actors who just com really start to sort of evolve completely into directors. I mean, I think you'd, right. I, you'd certainly at this point identify people like 
Eastwood and uh, and Howard primarily as, as directors. Maybe not as much Eastwood, but uh, certainly but Ron, Ron Howard, Howard I think definitely is somebody who used to be an actor. Yeah. Uh, and, and well, yeah, I think there's a big difference between kind of your your acting or tour, your Woody Allen's of the world, as opposed to your Lake Bell's. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love Bell. I'd She's love it if she. Started. I don't I totally want her to make more movies, but I'm just saying that you know you kind of have those you know actor movies. And I think maybe that's it. Was I kind of I was I was ghettoizing and Nietzscheifying uh, something in my own mind. Um, I've got my own broad generality, which is if I don't like an actor's choices, like on the whole, if I see a lot of this, them doing a lot of the same kinds of productions, the same kinds of roles, and I don't necessarily trust the decisions they make in those roles, I am probably not going to like the stuff that they do as directors. Mm. And I'm thinking about people like uh, Ben Stiller in um, like Kenneth Branagh's early career, where you have somebody, uh, Danny DeVito too, as a matter of fact, people who tend towards a particular kind of humor, a particular kind of story, and who especially make like big, broad acting choices are often more likely, I think, to make either uh, very self-indulgent movies or big, broad, sloppy movies. When I see somebody like a Jodie Foster or Sarah Polly, who's very selective about mm-hmm. what they do and who's uh, got more control and more precision in the acting that they do, it's much more likely that they're going to make a movie that seems to have that kind of restraint and that kind of thoughtfulness uh, that I really appreciate. In but a not film. not Jodie Foster. What did, did you like? What I, did you like of Jodie Foster? I would just like to say that Danny DeVito is great. Yeah, I like. I like. So <laughs> Death to Smoochie, one of your favorites. No, I, I, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed Death to Smoochie. I think Smoochie, War of the Roses is, is terrific. Very, I think he, you know, I think he has real sensibility. He has real yeah. eyes on a director. Like I totally understand finding them kind of sloppy over the top. Uh, but yeah, I definitely think he's somebody who has a sensibility. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not arguing they don't have sensibilities. In fact, I'm mm-hmm. arguing that they do and that sometimes I don't you like them. And I do agree that uh, War of the Roses is a fun film, but I think it's also a very self-indulgent and in some ways sloppy film. And the sloppiness is the the worst part of it. Like, Danny DeVito did not need to be in that film at all, and his acting choices directing himself, I think, are the worst part of that movie. Okay, but, but I think what, I guess the argument I would make for DeVito in contrast to what I actually think generally of, of actor-turned-directors is that DeVito does have a very strong sensibility. Uh, he li- likes a lot of, like, almost like Orson Welles-ish yeah, uh, ca- camera angles. Uh, you know, he's, it's, it's very, very... Exaggerated. Very it's, it's very exaggerated, but it is at least distinct. You know, I think the tendency from my perspective is that actor-turned-directors tend to make movies that are very character and story-based are very actor-driven and have kind of a blah visual style. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the person I would kind of put as the example of that would be uh, Tom McCarthy, mm-hmm. uh, who, who is some who did uh, the Station Agent. Whose films I all like? Yeah, the Visitor. He makes terrific and, films. Uh, he makes good. He makes pretty good films, uh, <laughs> in my opinion. But, but I, he makes fantastic but, films. But I think. But I also feel like they're not. You know, I'm. You know, I don't think he's show, doing anything with the camera. That's all that. Uh, expressive, like like, like the, the, the idea is just, and I think maybe this arises from certain frustrations that actors have. Like if if you know if there are you know if Terrence Malick is making a movie and you're an actor in that, it's like you know maybe there's not much for you to do in terms of like right. digging into a character. And so so uh, when you get an opportunity to direct, then you're going to be you know s- sort of compensate by by providing roles for yourself or roles for other people that are a little bit meatier uh, and are, there's a little bit more attention paid to those things and uh, McCarthy is kind of a big example for me you asked earlier like what of Jodie Foster's I liked I I mean I liked Little Man Tate it's okay and I thought that you know The Beaver is not a good film but if you want something that's got uh, like a distinctiveness to it that's got a voice to it oh, right. you really it's, can't it's, argue it's a, it's a that, that is an anonymous film yeah 
Do you, do you think that is from? I haven't seen it. Is it does that come from her or from from the craziness of that script or what? It, or or both? It's a pretty wackety script, but I yeah. mean, she. It was a very personal script for her. It was mm-hmm. a very personal project for her, and it was something that she really believed in and really wanted to make. And I mean, that's that's part of what I expect, at least from a director, is like a certain amount of like putting your own identity into something, regardless of uh, of who wrote the script. So I I, I kind of wanted to get into. S- to some favorites here because I feel like one of the one of the great films ever made was was a one-off by an actor turned director which is Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter uh, which is a film that was just not well received it, it, it tanked he never made another movie but why it, would somebody give, give that man money to make more movies <laughs> I know well they get mentioned at the uh, Academy Awards in so retrospect he got that going for uh, him but, which is uh, nice that, was, that, that one really stands out for me as you know an anomaly almost because I mean again that's a film with, that's extraordinarily expressive uh, that has that, that wonderful sort of southern gothic feel to it um, uh, the, and I find that kind of absent from a lot of, a lot of these movies uh, another favorite of mine is uh, Vincent Gallo uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just laughing at this, but I, I really, again, you know, if you don't—I mean, a favorite of everybody's. You know, if you don't, especially even if you, Roger, even Evers. if you think Buffalo '66 and The Brown Bunny or whatever pieces of shit or something, I mean, they're they're experiences. I mean, the guy the guy really has. So is having eye. your toenails pulled out? No, but the guy has an eye. I mean, I think I think they're both really good. I think he Buffalo '66 is exceptionally good, but but um, but I, that, that's the thing that I just find missing from so many of these films, which just seem very anonymously directed and, and, and almost TV ish uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, in their approach to, to filmmaking. But um, but what what are do you have do you have any any favorites any uh, actor actor turn directors that you really uh, like? If I can totally cheat here, uh, there was an actor named Harold Ramis uh, mm-hmm. who oh. became a film director and made a movie called Groundhog Day. Yeah, uh, that was pretty spectacular, just about perfect. Uh, but to cite more pure examples, um, I'm a big fan of Trees Lounge uh, oh, by Steve Buscemi, directed, which again just kind of a kind of a nice kind of low key Cassavetes light sort of thing. Wonderful, wonderful performances, primarily by Miss. Uh, Mr. Uh, Steve Buscemi. I'm also a big fan of uh, The Hired Hand, which is oh, a right. Peter Fonda's yeah. uh, sole directorial uh, opus, I believe. Uh, it's, it's like a, a very, debut. I think he made Yeah, I think he might have made another, made another movie, but it's like this very dreamy, very stonerish, very kind of psychedelic uh, sort of revisionist Western. Yeah. Uh, it's very 1970s, very, very compelling, very hypnotic, very kind of actory, but in a way that, you know... I, Great Warren Oates performance. And worth well. mentioning that it's the first film that comes to mind when I think of The Dissolve. Like yeah, because that, that, that magnificent film is, that film is the, nothing the dissolve, but dissolves. Uh, that one. Oh, definitely, and that's yeah. the definitely. I feel like those are two that like these are movies that would not have been made by somebody who was not an actor and very much reflect who these people were as as artists and as people. What about you, Tasha? Well, uh, I can't really say much to his early acting career because, uh, like, I haven't seen much of it. And a lot of it's not available. But Ernest Lubitsch actually started out as an actor, oh, wow, um, wow. both in stage and film. And you, you certainly can't say that he lacks for an eye or no. a sensibility or a, he has like, a bit of a touch. <laughs> that is a really good way to put it. Thank you. Um, let's see some other favorites. Uh, Christopher Guest, um, I yeah. think one of the one of the more exciting and and like definitively voiced. Uh, directors out there who started in sort of a similar brand of comedy and evolved his own very specific uh, like brand of of what he does. Still really fond of his films. <laughs> I, I kind of I, I'm not sure about the direction they've been going in lately, but uh, like a Mighty Wind is always going to be one of my favorites. Um, Best in Show, The Waiting for Guffman are just have a lot of brilliance to them. 
Um, Beat Takashi, uh, the Japanese film director, um, I like him quite a bit. He has a very dry sense of humor that is carried over both from the the roles that he plays and the films he directs, and then the roles that he plays in the films that he directs. I feel like he actually gives himself slightly more restrained roles in his own films uh, than in films that, that come from other people. But he does kind of have a like an almost Woody Allen-like uh, stock character. Like yeah. not not that he's like Woody Allen in any way, but like that he plays a very similar role no matter what the details of what he's playing. And uh, that particular role is just one I appreciate an awful lot. Yeah, I mean, well, and it's also a a style of filmmaking that is and a style of acting that just completely complement each other too just deadpan basically would be the word for it in both in both ways uh, uh, and an, another guy whose style is really unmistakable um, I'm gonna ha- I want to put in a, a word for for good old Warren Beatty yeah, uh, who has go. not who has not directed that many movies but whose films I almost all I like almost all of them right uh, he did uh, he did he's a true ghetto superstar Red, Reds and, and uh, Dick Tracy and uh, what's uh, Bullworth, Bullworth. Um, but uh, uh, and he co-directed did he co-direct uh, Heaven can Heaven can wait. Uh, yeah, yeah, with Buck Henry. Yeah, yeah, um, but he doesn't do he doesn't direct very often. But I think he's a he's a, there's at least an intelligence uh, there, and I think he's started working on something else, which is kind of interesting. Well, he's tried some material uh, is is pretty impeccable. Yeah, yeah and you were and his collaborators. Very, very it's like, people, oh, let's yeah. get Vittorio Storaro to shoot this. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna look pretty good. Um, and I I really I like Sean Penn. As, I was gonna bring yeah. him up if you didn't because you know again it's uh, it's uh, the, the films are very. Actor, actorly, very character driven, but but quite dark and and have a real sensibility to them as well. Um, uh, the pledge, I think, is a is a favorite of mine. But even stuff stuff like the Indian Runner, um, you know, it's they're serious films. They're films that you would expect from Sean Penn. But uh, Into the Wild is a big favorite of mine. Yeah, and right, part yeah. of that is like you can actually see him evolving as a director. Yeah. You can see him evolving towards like more and more of an experimental style and more daring and like putting more of his voice into a film and I also just have to admire him and not try to play that role himself I mean obviously he was completely inappropriate for it yeah Yeah. but when his too old stopped like it didn't stop uh, Sylvester Stallone from casting himself repeatedly as he uh, Kevin Spacey from casting himself as a guy who like died at 33 uh, oh right under the sea yep oh my well and the other thing too and I I think we should I should not treat the the whole actors doing well for actors thing with so much contempt in, in a case like Sean Penn too, because if you think of his films, the you know David Morse, uh, uh, you know uh, Jack Nicholson, you know Emil Hirsch. I mean these these are these are really big, you know performances that that uh, he gets out of these actors. I mean Nicholson at that point in his career was just virtually self self parody and uh, that that role really was uh, pretty pretty striking. So what are some actor uh, turned directors we'd like to see more stuff from? You know, one of the big ones for me is uh, John Malkovich. I mean, he he did uh, Dancer Upstairs as a one-off, and I interviewed him at the time, and he just came across as a really thoughtful, interesting, intellectual person with, like, a lot to say, like, as a creator, as a director. And I feel like he is kind of going into that Christopher Walken place of, like, playing parody versions of himself more and more. Mm-hmm. And as fun as that is, like, he has a sensibility that I just, I'd like to see more out of. 
Um, I can't wait for the next Sarah Polly film. Like mm. everything that she's done, mm. I, even if it's not to like to my most specific tastes, I just really admire the craft. And she's so young. Like just the idea of the career that she might have in front of her. Um, Julie Delpy's uh, directorial debut, I thought, was really really good, and I'd like to see more. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, the double uh, by uh, how's his name pronounced? R- Richard, I was Iodi. I was actually going to single him out as one of the people, uh, and I've, I've seen the double at, at Sundance, and it's it's pretty spectacular, um, especially if you like Brazil, uh, which I know you do. Yeah, we I like do. Happen to yeah, love what was the Brazil. one he did before that you really liked? Uh, Submarine. Movie called Submarine. Submarine, yeah, uh, which yeah. was absolutely fantastic, which I also really really dug. Yeah, um, I guess I guess I would probably can, can I can I say that I, I may be kind of trusting Ben Affleck to continue to deliver pretty yeah, good oh, movies. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Sure, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's okay to trust and you know, to I, like and to love Ben Affleck. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, th- though I feel like he started with his best movie and, and he keeps getting worse. Uh, <laughs> with, you know, I, I liked... Uh, and he keeps God, getting punished for I, these declines in quality. Right, right, by winning best picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, but... Uh, well, but he keeps getting more, more, more commercial, which yeah. is certainly an understandable instinct, but, yeah, but I think we need that. really I, hard to live up to Gone Baby Gone. What he does, what he what he's doing is 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 just good, solid Hollywood craftsmanship of a kind that we don't see very often. I mean, I, I think we films like Argo should be coming out pretty pretty regularly, but 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 they're treated now like high art. <laughs> uh, they're not. It's a, I don't think Argo. It's high, a good, solid art. commercial exactly. studio film. But I, I would I would totally love to see that type of movie come out more often. So uh, oh, so and, and I, I suspect he 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 could supply such a thing. So. Uh, uh, here's to you, Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the other kind of uh, sort of advantages to being an actor is you have connections uh, and you know people, and you're able to get these amazing, yeah. amazing uh, casts. Sometimes, if you're George Clooney, uh, you assemble these amazing casts and then you let them all down yeah. with your terrible choice of material. <laughs> um, but I would actually uh, cite to go back a little good bit. Good uh, luck, though. I would like to cite Alan Arkin, uh, who directed a movie in 1971 called Little Murders. Oh wow! That was a really intriguing, really neat little dark comedy. Uh, that I would love to see more of, although I think he's probably never... 42 be... years later, <laughs> yeah. he'll make a comeback. No, number two, uh, Lake Bell, uh, I thought was absolutely charming and delightful in, uh, yeah. in a world. Co-signed. Uh, yeah, and I think that definitely, like, I, I can't wait to see her next movie. I'd love to see Steve Buscemi uh, make more movies because he's just he's just a goddamn delight. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are all sorts of actors who... Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I thought, really kind of hit it out of the park with Don John, and he's 12 years old today. <laughs> so he has hundreds, <laughs> like, once he reaches puberty, once he turns... 21 like these are all milestones where I think his career will take off in even more exciting ways <laughs> after that happens so I'm, I'm I'm the one person rooting for you uh Joseph Gordon Levitt all right well I'll just I'll just add William Shatner to the list and we'll uh <laughs> and we'll we'll sign off uh T- Tasha Robinson Nathan thank you very much thank you The release of Veronica Mars today marks the end point of a famous Kickstarter campaign that helped turn fan passion for a ratings-averse UPN show into a feature film. Uh, the Veronica Mars Kickstarter raised over $5.7 million before it was over, and while it opened the floodgates for more crowdfunded or partially funded films like the Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself, it also raised questions about whether a Warner Brothers movie needed crowdfunding and what funders actually get from their investment. On the other hand, our own Nathan Rabin noted an increased level of enthusiasm for crowdfunded films that were unveiled at Sundance, which may be good for film culture. Here to sort it all out are Nathan. Hello there. Keith Phipps. Hello. And via Skype, Matt Singer. Hi, Matt. Hello. 
Hello. Uh, so, so Keith, uh, let, let's start with you. Uh, where, where are your, where's your head at on this Veronica Mars Kickstarter now that it's come to fruition? Um, well, I, I'll talk about where my head was when I first heard about it, which was, which was of, of two in two different places. Which is like, well, as a fan of the show, I was like, well, that's cool. I would like to see a Veronica Mars movie. Kind of need this happening. I was like, other one, but on the other hand, I was like, I don't think I can give to it because I'm going to have to review it. Uh, that's sort of one thing. But, but I think that speaks to sort of a, um, a bigger issue here. Is, is, you know, most films are not funded by the fans or potential fans or, 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 or people who see it. Most of them are, are kind of passed on. So it's kind of an interesting way to blur the lines. And, and I wonder if it changes what our expectations of a film are if we're paying not just to see it, but to, to make it. What do you think? Uh, I think I'm a little more uh, pro. You know, I think it's kind of a nice uh, exercise in participatory democracy. You know, I think that there are all these movies that would not exist uh, without uh, this this crowdfunding, like at, at Sundance. You know, there's definitely like a different chemistry uh, to to a movie that has been funded partially through that. You know, people have a rooting interest uh, in these movies. At the same time, I think there's this very uh, understandable skepticism about movies where movie stars and and, and uh, you know. They, well-known entities are a play here. I think there's this idea of, you know, these people are rich. Why the fuck do they need my money? Don't I need my $50 more than Kristen Bell does? Well, you know? I mean, I, I think, I mean, I don't want to characterize myself as negative. I actually think okay. it's a good way to close the gap on things. And that's, that is, I think, what happens with Veronica Mars movie is it's, it's some, in some way, it's sort of a guarantee to the studio that there's going to be some interest in this. And it's as much, I mean, I, I think they raised far more than they expected, but I think, I think the original plan was just like, let's see if we can, we can close the gap here i mean i think i would my my concern is that there's a lot of enthusiasm for it now and i don't necessarily think i i suspect that the hit to miss ratio in terms of quality on these films is going to be the same as it always is for films and it's not necessarily like every single single one is going to be brilliant or there's all these brilliant films that are just wait that that no one would take a chance on until crowdfunding comes along so i wonder if people kind of kind of lose enthusiasm um once the first, this first round of crowd-funded films uh, turns out to be uh, a mixed bag of, uh, of great, good, and not so good. Right, and I think that's where some of the sort of skepticism about Zach Braff uh, and his was kind of thing is like I could get this movie made uh, another way, but people would want me to compromise. People would want to have some kind of input. And, you know, there's part of me that's like, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Mm. You know, maybe these people are being empowered to make the most self-indulgent movies imaginable. I mean, we like to, you know, revere <laughs> the auteur. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things about collaboration. You know, the studio system was defined by a high level of, of collaboration. The studios were the antithesis of, of uh, Kickstarter and, and, and crowdfunding. Nathan Raven coming down the, the, side, of, the side of the man. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, coming down on everybody's well, side. Also, always with the lack of compromise and like letting a, letting a high donor uh, appear in your movie or something. Right, um, right. So what, what are your thoughts, Matt? Maybe I'm just a really cynical person, but I'm sort of waiting and I'm kind of, I'm actually kind of surprised that it hasn't happened yet. There isn't some kind of super high profile uh, Kickstarter embezzlement where people donate some huge amount and then the movie never materializes and I'm wondering it has to happen at some point right and then I'm kind of wondering how that will affect the whole model after that you know uh, so far it seems like for the most part the more high profile Kickstarters they've all come off I mean Veronica Mars is you know going to be playing in theaters and and VOD so people are going to get a chance to see it but I'm, I'm I don't know it seems there seems like there's so little oversight to me mm-hmm. uh, that I that's that would be my concern just as a potential donor is that like how do I trust these people to 
you know, take my fifty dollars and and deliver me my tote bag or whatever award <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to get. That said, you know, I think there was a I got a, a an email, a press release this week that Kickstarter has just recently, in the last couple of days, hit like a billion dollars in money pledged, right. uh, which is incredible, and 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 that's something like fifty-seven thousand projects funded. Now it's not all movies; that's like everything, every mm. kind of project that could be funded on there but a fair percentage of those are films i mean it's only uh, it's only 40 percent braf related every the other 60 <laughs> percent spread out a little bit i mean that that is the other thing that i find kind of interesting is that it is as you guys were saying like this this tool that seemingly has the potential to fund you know all these projects outside the system quote unquote and and to give people artistic freedom uh, to do all kinds of crazy things. But it, it seems like in practice, the stuff that is the most uh, successful and is able to generate the most money is sort of the opposite, is, is the stuff that has uh, sort of, uh, you know, it's by people who have built-in fan bases or it's stuff like Veronica Mars, uh, where, it, you know, the, the product already essentially exists almost, if not practically, then theoretically. People know what they're going to get because they've watched the show, so now they know roughly what the movie is going to look like. Or, you know, if you liked uh, Garden State, you'll like Zach Braff's new movie. You know, like, the the people that do the best there are are the people that are almost, not. I, I don't want to say don't need it, but certainly uh, could probably find ways to get their movie made in a different route, but it's 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 certainly convenient for them. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it, but I, I do find it interesting that it seems like the, you know, this crowdfunding thing, it does uh, suggest a, a great sort of thing for indie film, and I, there's lots of them that have gone that way, as, you know, Nathan saw them at Sundance, independent films that were financed that way, but the ones we hear about or the ones that raise the most money are generally the ones that are a little less independent. I feel it's probably hard to stand out with so many people doing this too. And, and there certainly have been some, some high profile uh, failures we were just talking or are apparent failures. And, and it's, it's getting strange. The people who are participating and there's the new Catherine Heigl film right now is struggling on Indiegogo, which is another crowdfunding service uh, to raise $150,000 and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's only a hundred hundred thirty-two thousand dollars short at this point. At this point, yeah, I mean, they yeah, have to be like... fair. They have their they have a March deadline or, or, or something. But it is um, it is. I, I wonder if maybe the tide is maybe already starting to turn, or perhaps uh, it, it's this is not. I haven't I haven't actually looked at their appeal. Maybe it's a matter of it not being the most appealing uh, offer right now. Well, it may, maybe too right. the, just the art of the ask of knowing what okay. what the right amount is. Sure. I, mean, I think that I think life itself was a really smart. Uh, campaign. I mean, for one, it was on a site site where it, it's going to take in whatever it gets. It doesn't have to hit some sort of threshold, you know, where it's all or nothing. But uh, but that that just nailed the number that it set, which right, uh, which right. was which is good. But um, and with that, I think it was a matter of. of they needed money to, to distribution, finishing it, like the, sure. the finishing touches kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, right. that's what it's supposed to be. I mean, it's called Kickstarter. Or well, in that case, Indiegogo. But in this, but but, but the yeah. site is called Kickstarter, so it's really it, it should be more about partially funding funding and right. and, and helping things out rather I mean, than fully funding something. Right. I mean, one of my favorite movies at Sundance was uh, God Help the Girl, uh, which was 
finished uh, with money from Kickstarter. And again, that was like $125,000 they had to raise and they successfully raised. And boy, it sure looks like it costs a whole lot more than that. And yeah, I think like with a lot of these, like if you're nobody coming from nowhere, you're going to have a really hard time on Kickstarter. You need to have sort of a fan base or a following or something that people know you from and kind of leverage that onto, onto other things. Otherwise, yeah, I can see it being... Uh, very, very difficult. There are also just certain films and filmmakers for whom this does not work. I remember uh, at the Upstream Color uh, screening that you that you hosted, uh, somebody asked Jane Carruth, like, hey, what about, you know, you haven't made a movie since Primer, how about Kickstartering your next thing? And it makes no sense in the world for Jane Carruth to do that because he's such an intense personal filmmaker. It's impossible to imagine him, you know, calling up some dentist, Skyping some dentist in Duluth, being like, so are you interested in the movies? I, I, I like to make movies, you know? It just seems <laughs> like that would just totally violate well, Duluth does rhyme with Caruth. They could talk about that. That's true, you know, but, uh, you know, we're like putting people in. Like, you kind of have to whore yourself out a little uh, in order to, to do a Kickstarter successfully. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. But, yeah, it's also a little bit injurious to human dignity sometimes. <laughs> Hat in hand? It's not well, you're begging for money in a classy, tasteful way. Well, I think also, I think the idea of, of uh, having proper incentives, like making, making yeah, I mean, I think, I think with uh, uh, with uh, with life itself, the Ebert doc, and I think with Veronica Mars too, his chance to see it early or see it as right. soon as soon as humanly possible, and or, or to have other sort of uh, neat kind of takeaways from it. And I think that especially with with things that, that have a built-in fan appeal, the idea that that you have uh, a souvenir or some sort of uh, some sort of uh, you know physical object. To, to show your support you're, uh, you're, means you're, a lot. You're part of the team. Right. You're, sure. you're not just a passive consumer of entertainment. You're somebody who makes things happen. I'm just trying to imagine, and now I'm trying to picture the upstream color tote bags and <laughs> what, what, what they might look like, and it's, I'm failing. <laughs> they'll, they'll act out a scene at your child's bar mitzvah. Yeah. Well, let, let me throw this thing, throw this idea out for you. Uh, the, my friend Barry Polterman, who, who edited... American movie, uh, way back in the day, earlier days. Name dropper. <laughs> Polter. I know. I know Barry Polterman. He's my buddy. Uh, but he back in the day. Back in the day, and this is quite quite some time ago. Early early internet. He was part of a company called Civilian Capital, and the way Civilian Capital worked was that they had they they would have actual. Um, Projects, specific projects that were that were fully conceived, and then they would have them put out like IPOs, and people could invest in these projects. And if the projects, and when the projects were made, they would see they would get a piece of that, just like it were a stock. They would get if the film was or was successful, you know, it wouldn't just be get, getting tote bags. You would get a piece, you actually had a piece of the film. And I wonder why you know it, it, it was not successful, and I and I you know and I'm not for whatever reason. Um, but uh, does that seem like a more appealing model to you than the than the Kickstarter model, or or, or not? Well, yes, from a financial perspective, sure. I mean, it sounds great if uh, theoretically, if uh, you know, instead of just giving my money to someone and then getting back a tote bag, yeah, <laughs> uh, we, you would get uh, you know you you'd get a, a, an actual return on investment. I think probably the, uh, the the problem is that so few independent movies actually do create a, some sort of return on investment <laughs> yeah. that it's not exactly the most uh, lucrative way to uh, to 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 make money, so a tote bag is a safer bet, in other words. Right, yeah. right, and I, I mean, I don't know all the rules, but I mean, Kickstarter is like is is not allowed. You're not allowed to give money to your investors through Kickstarter. I don't know what, exactly the legality of that, but 
you know, uh, th this comes up sometimes. You hear people saying, well, if, you know, when, when Zach Braff sells his movie, which he's already paid for in large part through Kickstarter to a distributor, people write articles saying, well, am I going to get my money back now? And the answer is always no. You're not, you're not really, like, you know, you're not a, uh, you're not a uh, funding the movie. You are donating, essentially. You know, you're not investing. You're donating and, and you're getting back your, your tote bag and whatever else and your sense of satisfaction of having contributed, you're not getting a, a, a financial stake. That's a whole different can of worms. The one other thing that uh, I was thinking about uh, in regard to this topic was I just recently saw a thing online about a bunch of guys who are making a semi-authorized, uh, like a biopic about the making of Clerks. Uh, I think it's called Making Clerks or something along that line, and it's on, I believe, Indiegogo, and they're raising money to make it. And Kevin Smith is not involved, but I think he gave them a thumbs up and said, you know, best of luck to you, and I hope it's very successful and all that. And I just found it interesting because, you know, you know, it's like young independent filmmakers trying to make a movie, raising money online this way, which I think is increasingly becoming the way to do this, whereas... When Kevin Smith was doing this 20 years ago, you know, there's all these famous stories about how he did it. You know, he sold his comic book collection. He maxed out his credit cards. He did this and that. And there's a lot of stories from that generation of indie filmmakers. You know, Robert Rodriguez, like, selling his body to m medical science and, and... He also stole uh, Robert uh, Townsend's credit cards uh, in order to <laughs> yeah, play, pay for El Mariachi. <laughs> he felt like there was a like, tradition being passed forward. <laughs> Right, and, and, and those things kind of like adding to the mystique of, of the movies, that, they, that it was like they had to make these movies so badly that they would almost literally kill themselves to do it. And I don't know, when I was, uh, when I was younger, that, there, there, there was something appealing about that, and I wonder if as much as gained financially by this model, if something is lost in that like mystique that you're losing by just being able to create a website and anyone around the world can give you money and it, and it, it becomes uh, relatively easy to, to, to raise a couple of thousand bucks if you're, uh, you know, um, enterprising enough to, to get on one of these websites. Maybe it doesn't add anything at all or doesn't to subtract anything at all, but I was curious if anyone else uh, had a feeling about that. I mean, yeah, to a degree, but, uh, but I mean, if one thing revisiting an American movie taught us, like it, it's never just one person making a movie. It's always a, a team effort. And in some ways, uh, if I want to, if we can want to wind down on a, on a utopian note, maybe this is just making the team that much bigger. Well, and you're also, I mean, you're going to have just as many crazy stories. It's going to be just as friggin' difficult to get that movie made, to make it good, to, like, pull all these crazy threads together and make it go here. Uh, if your movie is Kickstarter-funded, you know, that's still generally a very small amount of, of, of money to make a movie. So all of the crazy adventures, all of the crazy mythology is still going to be there. It's just maybe, you know, comes with a more uh, clear-cut endpoint or, or beginning. All right. Well, 21st century indie filmmaking. Uh, uh, Nathan Raven, Keith Phipps, uh, Matt Singer, uh, thanks for joining us. All right. Now it's time for this week's game, mystery game. Nobody, Everybody's coming in here not knowing what this game is. It's like a reality show. What's going on here? Blah, blah, blah. All right. But uh, basically... I'm not here to make friends. I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> um, I will end you, Matt. <laughs> Um, on Saturday Night Live uh, last season, Bill Hader hosted America's Toughest Game Show, in which he asked three hapless contestants to tell the difference between Dylan McDermott 
or Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> At one point, Mulroney himself came out carrying a picture of McDermott, and it still didn't matter. Uh, they, they, nobody could get the answer right. Uh, so this week, I thought I'd take that challenge out into the real world <laughs> and test your McDermott Mulroney knowledge. Uh, yes. Joining me are all of, all of, my, all of my crowdfunding friends. Uh, Nathan Rabin, uh, Keith Phipps, and Matt Singer. Hello. Brought to you by Frito Lays. Uh, and I've got the gaming hat here. And uh, let's let's see let's see let's see how much you know about these guys. <laughs> this is not good. This is not a buzzer game. I'm going. Uh, I'll go to each of you individually. The good part of this is that is that you do have a 50-50 chance of getting yeah. the answer right. Yes. Uh, so uh, that's that's the po- positive part. The negative part is that it's still an impossible game. That play they'll play tricks with your head, uh, which I'm looking forward to. So let's get it started. Nathan Raymond. Yes. So I'm starting with maybe my favorite question. Yes. If a plane crashed on the border. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this. All right, hold on. All right. Nathan Raven, yes. if a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where's Dom DeLuise? This is so bad. All right. Uh, Nathan Raven, if a plane crashed on the border between Canada and the U.S., where. <laughs> 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 I'm almost through it. I'm getting closer every time. All, All right. right, Nathan Raymond. Yes. <laughs> uh, All right, Nathan. If a plane crashed on the border between Canada and the U.S., where would you bury Dylan McDermott? You would bury him in the United States. You would indeed. And bury Dermot Mulroney, I believe, is, is Canadian. No, they're both from you. They're both from the really? U.S. Well, I thankfully that inaccurate information was not part of my answer. <laughs> oh, I wish I would have said. I'm gonna quit while I'm ahead. That's funny you think Dermot Mulroney. Okay, um, <laughs> but we hang out a lot. Okay. Nathan Raven has gotten one. Yes. Keith Phipps. Okay. it's on you. All right, Bill Pullman. Oh wait, no, Bill Paxton. <laughs> Which one was number sixty-seven on Empire Magazine's list of the one hundred sexiest stars in film history? What year? Well, I'm not giving you the year. Because oh, I, I think they're probably their their hotness rankings have shifted over the years. Mm-hmm. No, I'm gonna say Dermot Mulroney. No, oh. Dylan McDermott. Mm-hmm. Dylan McDermott far sexier than. Uh, <laughs> I, I find than, that surprising. Than Dermot Mulroney, uh, and I think I think you'll see. I think people's uh, he also made people's sexiest uh, people list. So okay, definitively. So okay, sexiest McDermotts. Matt Singer, to you. Yes. Which one was in my best friend's wedding? Oh, that was Dermot Mulroney. Correct. That's, a, that's one for Matt Singer. Nathan. Yes. Which one was in the wedding date? <laughs> <laughs> the wedding days? The wedding date. Oh, the wedding date. Yes, Dermot Mulroney. Oh, that, would, that would be Mr. Dermot Mulroney. Correct. I have seen also that motion Dermot picture. Mulroney. Uh, yes, but can you tell the difference? Apparently you can. I see all the different messing vehicles. All right. Keith Phipps. Which actor met his wife on the same day he got his big acting break by being cast in In the Line of Fire? In the Line of Fire. That's Dylan McDermott. Dylan McDermott. Yeah, wow. Nice. This, is not a, this is not a hard game for you guys. We know our for, Dylan. For you, Keith, that did happen. Whatever. All right. Matt Singer. I'm going to break the streak here. I can tell. Which one of them paid $4 million for a home in Los Angeles owned by Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Which one would pay $4 million for the Griffith Bend? Can you imagine right. what kind of stuff went on in that place? <laughs> <laughs> they should be paying you $4 million for that. 
thankfully, I, I know a whole lot about celebrity real estate, so this is no problem for me. Who has uh, that kind of bank? I'm going to guess it's Dylan McDermott. Dylan, he does. He does have that wow. kind of bank. He's he got nice. that uh, TV money. This is Dylan McDermott. So the next one is going to be an audio clue, Ooh, Nathan Raven. All right, here we go. Double. Okay. Be emotionally charged. So how do you prepare for that kind of role? I always try to do research when I'm preparing for a role. Um, is that uh, Mr. Dylan that McDermott uh, that, that I'm listening to right now? That's probably me. Yep. That's Dylan McDermott. That, that, uh, that distinctive rasp. <laughs> that is Dylan McDermott. Uh, Nathan, that voice Nathan gets, coming out of that handsome face. Nathan gets the audio clue uh, correct. Uh, now we're moving on to Keith Phipps. Keith Phipps. This actor was in Gracie with Elizabeth Shue, who was in Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> True. The last part is not actually relevant in any way. It is irrelevant to the Kevin Bacon game. Oh, yes. Um, Gracie, that was... Was that the soccer one? Mm-hmm. That's right. Directed by Davis Guggenheim. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dylan McDermott. No. Dermot Dermot Mulroney. Mulroney was in Dermot Elizabeth Gracie. Based on a story from Elizabeth Shue's own life. I know. Yeah. <laughs> she played soccer when she was a little girl. <laughs> she did. Uh, uh, all right. So what, what's the score at this point? Nathan's got three. Matt with two. And Keith, Keith at one. Wow. Youth one. Uh, this this is Matt Matt Singer. Have Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney ever appeared in the same TV show or movie together? Wow. There are two options for this one. Yes, I'm going to say no. Correct. They have not. That that <laughs> would that would violate some law of the universe. Although right. The Bill universe Paxton and, in on itself. and Bill Pullman exactly have right. appeared in a movie together. Really? What, Which one? What film? <laughs> oh god, I'm totally blanking on it now. Okay, that's all right. Uh, all right, we'll move. We'll the move Vagrant, forward. maybe from 1993. Sure, so, right. uh, it sounds plausible. All right, Nathan Rabin. Mm-hmm. Between the two of them, they've notched three Golden Globe nominations and one win. Who got the win? <laughs> the win? I'm going to say Dermot Mulroney. Although McDermott, he's got you know he double ups because he's got the whole TV thing going. But I'm still gonna go with uh, Dermot Mulroney. No, Dylan Mc- no! Dylan McDermott, uh, very famous for the for the TV show The Practice. All all of those nominations oh. were for The Practice. Really, and he, he was nominated for like My Best Friend's Wedding or something. He that was Dermot Mulroney. The world loves Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he's everybody's favorite. Remember, he's on Alexander Payne movie. He's great. Yeah. Uh, all right, Keith Keith Phipps. Uh, which actor had breakthrough roles in Longtime Companion in Career Opportunities? Huh. I'm going. All right, I'm going to say, in my this may not be this may not be correct at all. But I feel like Dylan McDermott started out a little earlier than Dermot Mulroney, um, so I'm going to say Dylan McDermott. Since those movies are a little bit earlier, no, it is Dermot, Dermot right, Mulroney. They started I pretty think, much at the same time. I think then the answer would be Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> it is not. You, it is correct, Dylan Dermot Mulroney. But I believe you said McDermott first. This I, is, I vaguely recall him having I, a I really think we found dumb the one look quiz that the one quiz that Keith isn't just destroying everyone on. <laughs> I like this. This. Yeah, I, I wonder how you guys are going to do in my in my Stephen Dorfer Brad Dourif quiz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm excited about that one. Um, Matt Singer. They may yes. be hard to tell apart. But but one of them has a distinctive scar on his lip. <laughs> Who is it? Oh my God, I don't know. A distinctive a... sexy scar on his lip. S- well, oh, that might a... be deceptive though. Yeah, playing with your head now. Uh, I get. I, oh, well, I, 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 okay, I got some more. I got some more for you. He fell on a piece of glass from a broken <laughs> dish when he was three years old. Oh, that in that case, scar. it's. It's definitely Dylan McDermott. 
No, no. Oh, no. Uh, how can oh, you get that wrong, that's Matt? How, that's how he gets all the... Uh, that's, that's, that's why Moroni isn't on those sexy people lists, because of the <laughs> stupid scar on his lip. Uh, He's on the horrible scar list. <laughs> yeah. It's very tasteless, kind of insulting. I failed yeah. you, Dermot yep. Moroni, I failed you. It's him and you. John Voight and Anaconda, basically. Um, uh, <laughs> all right, uh, uh, that's the audio clue. I think we've got one more. Is, this, is, there, is there anything on the line here? Nathan and Matt are tied. Oh, my God. Uh, all right. Nathan Raven. This is actually, you know what? You know what? This is this. Uh, I'm going to make this the tiebreaker question because I, I think you, you're getting one more. I did not uh, do math very well. If this is the last question, you'll have one more question than Matt. So if you get this wrong, Matt will be the victor. If you get this right, this is this is all yours. Are you all ready right. for it? All right. No pressure. No pressure. Which one was married to Catherine Keener for 17 years? That would be Mr. Uh, Dermot Mulroney. That's right. Uh, it's the easiest uh, one because of all uh, the all the. Yeah. Uh, I think actually when I interviewed her, she was married to Dermot Mulroney. Yep. Back Not in anymore. Nope. A long time. Yep. A long time. He's actually now married to Dylan McDermott. <laughs> it was very lovely. People kind of that's how that got Yeah, goes. yeah. There's like a whole. There's a really funny quote from Dylan McDermott about how about how he met the soulmate and this person he'd spend the rest of his life for <laughs> together, and they're they're not together anymore. Uh, oh. This is the same. This is the same woman who who with whom he bought the uh, Melanie Griffith Antonio Banderas <laughs> home. Oh goodness. Well, I amused myself with <laughs> that, that. woman, the divine all, uh, candy spell. <laughs> I hope you all were amused as well. Uh, uh, Nathan, uh, Matt, uh, Keith, thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to this being a game every week. <laughs> We've only begun to tap the, uh, you know, the richness oh, yeah. of this promise. Indeed. And now we reach 30 seconds to sell. We're in Tosh Robinson and Keith Phipps have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Tasha Robinson, are you ready to go? Or how are you feeling? Pretty good. You're nervous now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause for 30 seconds to think about that and blow my chance at stardom. <laughs> now that you've, uh, I've, I'm making you think a little bit here. All right, here we go, Tasha. Three, two, one. Oh. It's no surprise that U2's kind of generic ordinary love from Mandela Long Walked Freedom lost the 2014 Best Song Oscar to Let It Go. But even if you're sick of ordinary love or U2 or Bono, check out the sweet, authentic, acoustic version performed on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Kimmel, which is easy to find online. Reducing the song to guitar and voice takes out all the U2 bombast and all the heartstring yanking production and pushes the band to find the song's melody and emotion and to remember that they're musicians first and rock stars second. Unplugging can't rescue the film, but it absolutely rescued this song. Wow. Well done, Tasha. You know, that, that is arguing up a hill <laughs> for, for, for new U2. Uh, uh, Keith Phipps, are you, are you, yeah, how are you feeling? You ready? I'm, I'm feeling good. Okay. Three, two, one, go. I'm selling an idea, and that idea is exploring the wilds of YouTube where uh, heroes have, uh, now that there's sort of a, the time limits have been extended, I'm not sure when that happened, but heroes are now uploading full films, and I'm in no way supporting film piracy. Anything that should be available legitimately through streaming or physical media should not be on there, but rare films, out-of-print films, uh, versions of films that aren't otherwise available, for instance, The Keep, which we had to track down a, a, uh, the original version on YouTube for, uh, for Scott, go for it. It's great. YouTube, the wilds. Yep. All right. Uh, that was uh, that was pretty good. And I have to say, 
given that uh, you, you've played on my uh, <laughs> sentiment, sentiment sen- that that was a, that was an appeal specifically for me because uh, the, the keep uh, that is available uh, via streaming is pan and scan, and without the best thing about it, which is the Tangerine Dream score, uh, I watched Zabriskie point that way. Uh, so Keith, I'm, I'm going to give this one to you. I think I feel like YouTube is filling in the gap, however murkily. Uh, between uh, uh, what is and is not available. Uh, so uh, you are the winner this week. Well, given that you can find this song on YouTube, I'm just going to consider myself the winner as well because <laughs> if you go looking for films on YouTube, you might run across this somewhere along the way. Okay, Tasha. Keith, thank you very much. That does it for episode 15 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. And if you have any questions or thoughts, email us at feedback at the Dissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you're looking for any of us to help crowdfund your dream project, sorry, but things are a little tight for us right now. <laughs>